This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray that through this word, you might give us the grace, the courage, the freedom to come clean. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a great joy to be with you all again. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that I got to worship with you, and it's a, a delight to come back and worship with you today and also next week. Uh, so having two consecutive weeks is a, a, an unusual uh, blessing and thrill. And as I was talking to Jim about uh, what to cover over these two weeks, uh, we agreed that we would take time uh, to draw everyone's attention to one particular spiritual discipline, uh, one that we think a lot about during Lent, and that is the spiritual discipline of confession, confession of sin. It's what we just did earlier in the service today. It, this topic came to mind the other day as I was walking somewhere and uh, a lady crossed the street against the light, right? You see this all the time, right? We do this all the time. Like, no one's coming. I'm going to go. But this lady was kind of engrossed in her phone. I was stopped waiting for the light. I saw there was a car coming. She did not because she was staring at her phone and went out against the light. And here comes a cab, right? Coming down the street. He's got a green light. And there's a, a lady with a phone blocking his way, so he honks. She stops in the middle of the crosswalk and looks at him like, what's your problem, dude? She's in the wrong. She's got the red hand. He's got the green light. But her response was, you've got the issue, not me. It got me thinking about how hard it is for all of us to admit when we're wrong, even when it's obvious even when everyone knows. Because the driver did nothing wrong, and the lady was clearly in the wrong, and yet it is so hard for us to come clean, to admit when we're wrong, or in scriptural terms, to confess our sins. We're quick to justify what we do, and we're slow to say, you know what, I was wrong. Now, why is that so hard? Why is it so hard for us to come clean? That's the question that the uh, reading from 1 John on page 8 in your order of service, this is the text we're going to be looking at primarily today. 
This is the question that the Apostle John addresses with these words. Why is it so hard for us to come clean? Now, I'd like to start by making three observations about this passage. Uh, Let's begin with perhaps the most obvious. You've got eight verses printed there on page eight, and in those eight verses, there's a really little word that pops up over and over and over and over and over again. What little word is that? Two letters. What word is it? If, right? If, verse six. If, verse seven. If, verse eight. If, verse nine. If, chapter two. uh, If, verse ten. And if, chapter 2, verse 1. See, I almost missed one. That's how many times it pops up here. You've got six if statements, conditional statements. Now, biblical writers did not have Microsoft Word, right, when they were composing their letters. They did not have a bold button and an italics button and an underline button to annoy readers for generations after those buttons were invented. No. When they wanted to make a point, one tool that they would use was repetition. You have six ifs in eight verses. He's trying to get our attention about something. He's structuring his thought around these conditional sentences. If this, then that. If this, then that, and so forth. Now, second, I want you to notice that this is not a random list of disconnected statements. No. John oscillates. We, we use the word oscillate generally to describe one thing, right? And, and you've got your oscillator at home waiting for the weather to get warm enough that you pull it out. You pull out your oscillating fan, that thing that pivots. It goes here, and you feel great, and then it goes there, and you feel horrible, right? And you're just waiting for it to come back. Oscillating between two points. That's what John is doing with these if statements. It's not just a list of six random things. He is oscillating between a problem on the one hand and a correction on the other. Thus, if you look more closely again, verse 6, you have a problem. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Verse 7, here's the correction. But if we walk in the light. Verse 8, here's a second problem, right? See this? If we say we have no sin... Verse 9, here's the correction, if we confess our sins. And then the third problem comes in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. What's the correction? Chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin. So this passage oscillates between problem and correction. One more observation, and this will help us understand why it's so hard for us to come clean. If you look at those three problems, right, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, Do you see anything similar about those three? How do they start? All three of those problems, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, begins with what? If what? If we say, right? You see that? If we say, if we say, if we say. So the problem that John is addressing in this passage all stems from what we tell ourselves. There's a narrative we're saying to ourselves. There's a story we're telling ourselves. And those stories do not allow us to admit when we've done what's wrong. The first story is in verse 6. This is the story that says, I'm sure I'm right. Okay? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. I'm sure I'm right. I mean, listen, 
I have fellowship with God, all right? Like, I'm at church on a Sunday in March, and it's not even Easter. I'm watching this on Zoom when I could be watching pregame coverage of Elite Eight games, right? Like, <laughs> I think I know where I stand. I'm sure I'm right. And that's the first reason we have a hard time admitting when we're wrong, because our knee-jerk reaction when someone honks at me and I'm in the sidewalk is to say, well, wait a second, I know I'm right. I don't know about you, but I know I'm right. The second story we tell ourselves is in verse 8. This is the story that says, I'm sure I'm a good person. If we say we have no sin, there's just nothing wrong with anything we've done. The emphasis in verse 8 is that I have no sin to confess. I don't have to come clean because I already am clean. I'm a good person. You can't accuse me of doing something wrong because of who I am. Here's how we say it. I'm not the kind of person who would do that. I understand why you misread what I did but I'm not that kind of person. If I were that kind of person, maybe it would have been manip manipulative, but I'm just really compassionate. That's just who I am. It's a story we tell ourselves, and it makes it hard for us to admit when we're wrong because the story we believe about ourselves is I'm sure I'm a good person. The third story we tell ourselves is in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. This is the story that says, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. You see, verse 8 and verse 10 are very similar, but there's a difference. Verse 8 is saying we have no sin. That is, I'm just a good person all the time. Verse 10 is saying, it's not a claim to perfection. It's saying we have not sinned. It's saying, in this particular instance, I didn't do anything wrong. Verse 8 is saying, I would never do something like that. Verse 10 is saying, well, nobody's perfect. But in this instance, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. Now, all three of these claims, all three of these statements disclose the stories we tell ourselves, one or more of them. I'm sure I'm right. I'm sure I'm a good person. I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. And they push back against anything anyone else might say or point out in us. Whether it was your spouse this morning pointing something out about you, and you're like, nope, nope, that's not true, not what happened. Sorry, it's Sunday morning. Nobody has arguments on Sunday mornings at homes. I know that. Whether it's your child pointing out, Daddy, didn't you say that that was wrong? Well, not in this instance. Be be because I, I did it. And, and it's okay for me to do this, but don't, you don't do that yourself. Whether it's a boss pointing out something at work, or a coworker, or someone who works for you, whether it's a friend, or a counselor, or a pastor, we push back and revert to one of these stories, one of these narratives. But friends, note the consequence attached to each of these negative statements, these, these, sto these stories we tell ourselves. The consequence of the first one, verse 6, is we lie. I say, I'm sure I'm right, John says, we lie. Verse 8, we say, I'm sure I'm a good person. John says, <laughs> the only person you're deceiving is yourself. 
Verse 10, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. We make him a liar. You see, when we fall into the trap of believing these stories about ourselves, the Apostle John says we're blind. We can't see. We lie. We deceive ourselves. We make God a liar. We're confident we have such a handle on ourselves, on our actions, on why we do the things we do. But what God is actually saying is, you don't know yourself well enough at all. You're actually blind. Friends, sadly, this is a big reason that people today, and perhaps some of you who are joining us today, it's a big reason that people today reject Christianity. For far too many of us Christians, when sins of the church are pointed out, we go back to these well-worn stories. Well, I'm sure we're right. I'm sure we're good people. I'm sure we didn't do anything wrong. I'm sure that leader didn't do anything wrong. And we rush to defend them using one of these very stories. And people outside the church, people who don't even know Jesus, see our blindness our self-delusion. And they say, I don't want anything to do with that. And friends, who could blame them? Because they've actually come to the same conclusion about us that God has. So this is not just a theoretical thing. It's true there is healing in this passage for us, and we're going to get there. Friends, this is a real problem with real consequences for real people. And let me just add here, if, 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 I, if I did just describe your objection to Christianity, can I just say thank you for being here? Thank you for showing up in a church or joining us on Zoom on a Sunday in March. It's not even Easter. Because we, as, a, as the church, I'm not a member of this church, so I can't speak about this church, but we, as the church, have lost a lot of credibility because these are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And God's saying, you're deceiving yourselves. And that's why the Apostle John brings this to our attention. He's saying you're deceiving yourself when, if you believe these stories you tell yourself. We think, we think our confidence in our rightness is somehow a sign of our spiritual maturity. We think our confidence that we are good people, that we're not like those people. We wouldn't do stuff like that. 
We think that that is somehow an indication of our fellowship with God, and God says we're blind. Only God knows how long we've been fooling ourselves. And friends, all of this, the stories we tell ourselves, the self-delusion God is addressing in us, the negative impact our self-confidence has had on the testimony of Jesus, all of this is intended by the Apostle John to get us back to the story that made us Christians in the first place. The story at the center of our faith is not that we are good people getting better. That's not it. Friends, the story at the center of our faith isn't primarily about us at all. It's a story about Jesus, who said he did not come to call the healthy but the sick. He did not come to call the righteous but the sinner. And what's amazing is that in Jesus' dying hours, he walked back every one of these stories we tell ourselves. It's remarkable. Consider Luke chapter 23, the story of Jesus' crucifixion. While we're telling ourselves that third story, I'm sure I did not do anything wrong. In Luke 23, we find two thieves crucified with Jesus. One of the thieves said, save yourself and us too. And the other rebuked him and said, don't you understand? We're here because we deserve this punishment. We're, we're really criminals. But he says, this man in the middle has done nothing wrong. We claim I didn't do anything wrong, and it exposes our blindness. But the thief on the cross testified about Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. You see, Jesus is actually the only person who could take this story in his mouth. He's the only one who could truthfully say, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. Even a thief undergoing execution could see it. And his testimony to Jesus' innocence take this, takes this story out of our mouths. We have done things that are wrong, but not Jesus. And it's not just the thief on the cross who testifies to Jesus. It was also the chief judge at his trial, Pilate. In Luke chapter 23, verses 14 and 15, Pilate is arguing with the religious leaders who want Jesus to be crucified. And he said, you brought this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining, examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Multiple times, Pilate says, why do you want to crucify him? This is a righteous man. Even Pilate's wife testified to Jesus' righteousness. Remember the dreams she had about this just man. And both Pilate and his wife were right about this. Jesus is good. He's the only good person who ever lived. He's the only one who could tell that second story about himself. I'm sure I'm good. I'm sure I'm not the kind of person who does that. And by his perfect life of obedience to God, Jesus takes the second story out of our mouths. He's the only one who could honestly say that he is truly good. When we tell ourselves this narrative, we are only exposing our own blindness. But on the cross, Jesus didn't have to make that claim for himself. Pilate did. 
and his testimony is true, and the testimony of the thief is true. But then after he died, the Roman centurion looked on and said, certainly this man was innocent. You see, we tell ourselves the first story, I'm sure I'm right, but we succeed only in deluding ourselves. But with Jesus, he didn't even have to claim it for himself. A Roman centurion testified to it for him. Jesus' life was so pure that even a Roman soldier could look on and say, that's a righteous man. You see, friends, Jesus in his life and in his death walks back all of our narratives. When we want to claim, I'm sure I'm right, I'm sure I'm a good person, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong, the gospel says look to Jesus. He's the one who gets to tell those stories about himself, not us. He is everything you and I have failed to be, and yet he put himself in our place. He put himself in the place where our self-righteousness and our damage to other people should have put us. Yet Jesus bore all of that in himself. And he did it for you. He did it for me. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead to prove that everything he said and everything he did was true. And he did it to break the power of these stories over us. Because of Jesus, we don't have to, have, we don't have to confess that we are right or, or that we are good people or that we haven't done anything wrong. In fact, because of Jesus, we expect that we're not all right. We anticipate that we are in need of healing. We expect God to use others to help us see. And that's where the other half of this passage comes in. Instead of telling ourselves in verse 6, I'm sure I'm right, verse 7 says to walk in the light. What that means is to adopt a posture of curiosity. I used to think that walking in the light meant walking without sin. Can I nerd out for a second? If you don't want to nerd out with me, turn off your brain, think about something else. I'll bring you back in a sec, okay? Um, I'll try to remember to bring you back in a sec. I used to think that this passage, walking in the light, meant walking without sin. That's what it would mean to be walking in the light, right? Instead of walking in darkness, doing sin. Walk in darkness, do sin, walk in the light, don't do sin. Problem. It dawned on me one day, there's a problem with that understanding. Verse 7 can't mean that. Walking in the light cannot mean walking without sin. You know how I know that? Because it says that as I'm walking in the light, the blood of Jesus is cleansing me from my sin. If walking in the light meant walking without sin, there would be no sin for the blood of Jesus to confess, right? So walking in the light does not mean I'm living, good, I'm living right, I'm living righteous. Actually, I think that whole misunderstanding puts us in, back into those narratives I'm trying to break us away from. Walking in the light means... Living our lives in the light of God's presence. And if God turns something up in my life, not pretending like it's not there. That's what walking in the light means. That's why I say we adopt a, a posture of curiosity with respect to ourselves. We respond to things in our lives not by saying, I'm sure I'm right. We respond to things in our lives by going, huh, that's interesting. I don't think I've seen that. Maybe you're right. 
Because just because I don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. So we become curious. That's why we call them blind spots. We can't see them. We need other people to help us see. And this is where I, I encourage you, what repentance looks like in this passage is not moving from self-delusional stories to deep introspection, where you kind of comb through everything in your life looking for any little thing to confess. That's not what this passage is calling us to. What this passage is calling us to is curiosity. Confession can become a dour act of penance where we can never look up, and that's not what we're going for during Lent. Not everything we do in life is wrong or sinful. If you walk... If you walk away from this sermon confessing sin more, I'm not sure that I actually did my job well. That's not the point of this sermon or this passage. What I want to encourage you to do is to live in reality. Not telling yourself, I'm, I'm good, and pretending like everything coming out of your life is great, and not spending eight hours a day walking around with hunched shoulders, confessing every possible sin, and being generally impossible to live with. I'm calling you to live in reality, to be curious about what's going on inside and how it manifests outside. And when the Spirit turns up, verse 9, we confess our sins. We acknowledge. We acknowledge whatever the Spirit turns up. Here again is the difference between curiosity and introspection. Introspection, I'm looking for stuff to confess, Curiosity, the spirit turns something up. And you go, oh, oh, right? <laughs> you had those experiences before? Where like the light, it's like the lights come on and you go, oh, you're right. There's something I left undone that I should have done. There's something I ought to have done, but I didn't. We don't have to make up sins to confess. That's the problem with the introspective route. But if the Spirit points something out and says, that was wrong, you say, yep, you're right, that was wrong. If you're curious, though, you might discover you did something because it's a cultural thing, not necessarily a sinful thing. Or maybe it's a family of origin thing. It doesn't make it right or wrong. The reality is most of our actions are muddled. There's good and there's bad, and it's a big, messy soup. And there's other things mixed in, like culture and background and formation and things like abuse and trauma, and it's hard to figure some of these things out. I'm not saying there's no such thing as right and wrong. I am saying that we can take a dualistic approach to our lives and try to put everything in one category or the other, and life is just way too complex for that. So I want to encourage you towards curiosity, walk in the light, and whatever the Spirit turns up that is sinful, just acknowledge it, confess it. Yep, you're right, God. I'm trying to blame my family of origin, but really in that case, that wasn't, that wasn't my parents' fault. That, was, that has me written all over it. And finally, and I love this last correction, you see the, the, the pivot between verses 10 and 1? If we say we have not sinned, but, halfway through verse 1, if anyone sins. Did you notice how the three corrections on this side are different from the three problems on this side? 
The three problems are all if we say, if we say, if we say. But the three corrections have very little to do with what we say. The second one has something to do with what we say, if we confess, right? The first one is how we live if we walk in the light, the posture we adopt. And the last correction isn't anything positive at all. If anyone sins, <laughs> well, I can do that, right? Out of all six of these things, I'm confident I can do the last one. I can sin. It's not positive at all. But notice what it says. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate. You have someone to go to bat for you. You have the best defense attorney in all creation, the one who lived and died for you, the one who rose again for you. And so my third and final encouragement to you is enjoy your forgiveness. You are going to sin, and you have an advocate. So be curious about yourself and acknowledge what the Spirit turns up and enjoy your forgiveness. You don't have to confess longer or harder or more or really, really show God you mean it this time. If you sin, you have an advocate, the one who is righteous, Jesus Christ. So enjoy your forgiveness. Friends, our inclination, even after this sermon, will still be to go back to these narratives. I'm sure I'm right. I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. I'm, I'm sure I'm not that kind of a person. But in those moments, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus who had the right to tell himself these stories and yet laid it aside for you and took the blame for our delusional narratives for us. And step into this vulnerable place where you will find healing for everything inside. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the one righteousness that covers us, the righteousness of Jesus, our Savior. We acknowledge, confess, and repent of lesser righteousnesses we make to assert our spirituality, our rightness, our goodness. Help us by your Spirit to be people of curiosity. To have no fear in entering vulnerable spaces, but to have grace to acknowledge whatever your Spirit turns up. That we might be faithful witnesses of Jesus. And that those who have been turned off by the church because of our delusional narratives, that they might find the hope of the church is not our righteousness, but is in a Savior who has come for them. Make us faithful witnesses to Jesus, even in our confession, for we ask in his name. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. 
And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.